0: Welcome to another episode of Criminal Discourse Podcast. I'm Trish. I'm Wendy. And we're back with you with an all new episode. This one, I believe, is coming out the end of August. We do pre record. So we had just done our last two back to back. So this comes out at the end of August. We're in our fourth season here. I know it's crazy, right? And we want to thank you all that have been with us this whole time or have just joined us, found us, most likely, probably through word of mouth. (laughs) We're not that well known or googling your favorite cases. Oh, yeah. If you have a favorite case that we haven't covered, suggest it to us. We love those. Yes, yes. And you can do so by going to our website criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. On there, you will find all of our show notes, all of our episodes and our contact page where you can reach out to us. You can also reach out to us through our Facebook page, our Instagram page at criminal disc We have a Twitter, At Criminal Pod and a YouTube channel. And that's it for social media at this point. Let's get it started then. There we go. Okay. So I don't really have any crime news. There's a couple things burning, you know, kind of in the wings of some cases we covered, but nothing has come to head yet. So we'll wait and see how that is. You know, Sophia Tuscan, they're still interviewing. So I do have a little something actually. Now that I think about it, I read an article a few weeks ago that the Garda were headed over to France. They had contacted French authorities in wanting to talk to, and this is the Sophia Tuscon de plantier case out of Ireland, West Cork, to talk to the man that Marie Farrell claims is the man she saw on Kelfada Bridge that night. Okay. If you've listened to the episode, you know what I'm talking about. If not, listen to the episode, then you'll know what I'm talking about. She claims that when she was shooting the documentary for Jim Sheridan, she decided after 20 plus years, she was going to like look up Sophia Tuscant de Plantier's husband, Daniel Tuscant de Plantier, and in photographs, you know, because you can hit images on Google, I'm sure, and she saw a photograph of a man standing next to him, like an associate of some sort. And she claims, oh, that's the guy after 20 something years. So the Garda is asking to talk to him. He still lives in France. And to see, you know, she claims that's the man she saw that night. Now, if you know the story, you know, she says a lot of things and you don't know what's true. So we'll see how that plays out. I don't think anyone is following the Sophia
1: Duplantier beat as closely as Trish. I do have a lot of Google alerts. on <laughs> this case. I'm going to put that out there that you're the expert on this. This now.
0: is well, I'm sure there are many more than me. But it is a case that I do. I do a deep dive case usually once a year. And that was my last deep dive. Mm. I'm still there. You're the expert to me. Okay, I'll take that. <laughs> All right, everyone, we're going to get started. And we're going to the state of Texas this time, specifically Austin, which is the state's capital, although not the largest city in Texas. It's actually the fourth but it is the 11th most populated city in the United States. After winning independence from Mexico in 1836, the Republic of Texas had established its own country with its own government and monetary system. So this was not part of the United States as of yet. At the time, Houston was the capital, but that changed in 1839 to Waterloo, which was renamed Austin after Stephen F. Austin, the Republic's first Secretary of State, And then, of course, it became part of the United States. So on October 2nd, 1999, 74-year-old Stephen Beard called 911 a little before 3 a.m., He told the dispatcher that he needed an ambulance and it felt like his guts were coming out of his stomach. He didn't know what was going on and felt that it might have had to do with a recent medical procedure he had gone through. He told the dispatcher he was in awful pain and he was lying in his bed, again, trying to figure out what was happening to him. When Deputy Alan Howard arrived at the Toro Canyon residence at 3 a.m., the front gate was unlocked. And there were no lights on. It didn't look as if anybody was up. So Howard banged on the front door and he rang the doorbell, but no one answered. At the same time, Stephen was still on the phone with 911, so they know he was inside. Howard gained entry through a sliding glass door into the master bedroom after being able to see Stephen inside. Now, upon arrival of the EMTs, Howard had gone to the front door to let them inside. Sergeant Gregory Truitt arrived on scene at the same time that Stephen's wife, Celeste, and her daughter, Christina, came to the front door. Now, Celeste had heard the banging and went to Christina's bedroom, actually slamming the door open, turning on the lights, wanting Christina to investigate who was at the front door. So when Christina went to the door... You know, all she can see is these emergency vehicle lights on outside. She's kind of confused what's going on. Celeste joins her and she wants to know why are all these people in her house? And that's when she's told her husband had a medical emergency. And that's when she starts screaming, don't let him die. And she's saying that statement repeatedly. Hmm. So Sergeant Truant found Celeste's behavior odd, such as you just did. One minute she was screaming not to let him die. And the next she's saying, quote, This is perfect timing. We were supposed to leave for Europe tomorrow. She's irritated. That's how it came off. This came from an episode, actually the first episode of Snapped.
1: Oh my gosh, the very first one.
0: So if you remember the first episode of Snapped, this is the story of Celeste Beard Johnson. So Stephen was transported to Bracken Ridge Hospital while authorities remained on the scene. Now, what started out as a medical emergency soon turned into a criminal investigation as a 20-gauge shotgun shell had been found on the floor under the corner of an EMT's bag. Now, at this time, both Christina and Celeste had been escorted to the front door by officers to be transported to the hospital. So a little bit about Celeste Beard Johnson. She was born on February 13th in 1963 in California, and she was adopted at birth by Edwin and Nancy Johnson. Her biological parents are unknown. Celeste didn't appear to have a happy childhood as she dealt with, according to her, physical and sexual abuse from her adopted father. And for that reason, she had attempted suicide in her teens, and she had a history of running away. She just did not want to be home. So in 1980 at the age of 17, Celeste gave birth to twin girls, Jennifer and Christina. And Celeste would go on to marry their father, Craig Bratcher, as the two had been a couple since Celeste was 15. Now Craig battled his demons also with drugs and alcohol and violence issues, according to Celeste, and the couple's relationship ended in 1983 when Celeste left with her twins. However, being on her own was a struggle, so Celeste decided she was going to join the Air Force, which meant she had to leave her twins in Craig's care. Now, Celeste didn't follow through with enlisting as she felt she could not give up her girls, but when she tried to get them back, a bitter custody battle ensued. At one point, Christina reported, her father had been abusive towards her and her twin. And after that, a compromise was reached with Christina staying with Celeste and Jennifer staying with her father. Now, this would be the first time in the twins' lives that they had been separated, and they really wouldn't be fully reunited until Craig Bratcher committed suicide in 1996. And around that time, the twins were 15 years old. So Celeste would go on to marry two more times in the following 10 years, but by 1993, she and Christina would be settled in Austin, Texas. Jennifer, who was still in the custody of her father at that time. So Celeste is now 30, and she's working as a cocktail waitress at the prestigious Austin Country Club, one of the oldest clubs in the state of Texas. And it is there that she would meet 68-year-old Stephen Beard. Now, Stephen Beard was a multimillionaire, having founded and eventually selling KBVO television station for a rumored $15 million at the time. And Stephen had been married to his wife, Elise, for 42 years, but she had died of brain cancer in 1993. This was just two weeks after meeting Celeste. So Stephen wanted to find someone to spend time with, and Celeste seemed to fit the bill with her outgoing and charming personality. Stephen soon asked Celeste out, and after a month of dating, asked Celeste and her daughter to move in with him. Stephen's children had been grown, so they were out living their own lives. That included Stephen III, Becky, and Paul, who may have had concerns over this new relationship since Celeste was so much younger, but they all felt that their father was happy. Sure. Well, and if I'm
1: anyone involved, if I'm a friend of Celeste, I think that this might be the greatest thing to have happened to her. A struggling mom with a young daughter and a Rich guy wants to take care of you. I mean, there's some red flags, some alarm bells going off, but potentially this could be a storybook kind of ending. It won't
0: be, I can tell,
1: <laughs> but <laughs> could have been.
0: Okay. So Stephen is said to have lavished Celeste with gifts and first class trips to foreign countries. So still, why dating Stephen? So she's in this dating relationship with him. Celeste files for divorce from Jimmy Martinez. So clearly, I don't know if. I'm assuming Stephen knew she was married at the time of them going out, but she did do it legit. She filed for divorce. Still a little messy. She's a little messy. <laughs> so on February 18th, 1995, Stephen and Celeste would marry. And this is after he promised her he would give her a million dollars throughout their marriage, and he would help her regain custody of Jennifer. He even offered to adopt her daughters. So it kind of sounds like when they were coming together. It was almost like a business arrangement. He wanted a companion. And I think he genuinely liked her daughter. Mm-hmm. And he says, OK, you know, you do this with me and we move in together. I will give you I will set up a trust and I will give you over the course of the marriage a million dollars.
1: Yeah, I could see how his kids would get upset with that. But, you know, he earned the
0: money it's his money, it's his money to do with what he wants to. So both Jennifer and Christina, because Jennifer would come to live with them, reported having a good relationship with Stephen. He went out of his way to talk to them and include them in activities. And although wary due to their mother's history with men, they came to see Stephen as a kind stepfather. And he seemed to have a closer relationship with Jennifer more than Christina. Christina almost was kind of Celeste, because remember, that's the one that went with Celeste when they were younger, when the twins split up. Mm -hmm. So Stephen and Jennifer, they would go out for breakfast every Sunday morning and then go out for drives together to get ice cream. So they just seemed to have a little closer bond. But both girls got along with him. So all seemed well with the newly formed family. And within six months of marriage, Celeste had depleted the first $500,000 that had been placed in a trust for her to use by Stephen. Messy. (laughs) It was in the first few months of marriage that Stephen's banker would also inform him that Celeste had been removing some jewelry and silver that had belonged to his first wife, Elise, from their safety deposit box. So this out-of-control spending started to cause problems for the newlyweds. As it should. Yes. (laughs) Yes. So in talking about Celeste spending, so it was after the wedding, Celeste went on lavish sprees. She admitted in season one, episode seven of Snapped Behind Bars. So this is a follow up to some of the episodes that they had already covered. Okay. That she would spend anywhere from $15,000 to $30,000 a day. And in one month, she spent $125,000. She claimed that she was mostly buying fine art and household items for the couple's two homes. So they had one home in a prestigious neighborhood, and then they had a lake house. So by the end of the first year of marriage, Stephen actually moved forward with filing for divorce. But the couple, through counseling, would reconcile, and he withdrew his petition about two months later. Had they divorced, Celeste would have only received her other $500,000, and that's it. So the couple still faced some other issues, especially concerning Celeste's mental health. Celeste had always struggled with depression, and in February 1999, she would check herself into a psychiatric facility for suicidal ideation. The couple had been fighting when Celeste, now I've read couple different versions of what she grabbed. But in this version, she had grabbed a fire poker threatening to kill herself. And another article I read, it was a gun. Mm. So she grabbed something. She threatened to kill herself. Police were called and the incident was safely resolved with Celeste agreeing to sign herself into treatment. So it is while an inpatient at St. David's Pavilion Psychiatric Hospital that Celeste met a fellow patient, Tracy Tarleton. Tracy, a self-identified lesbian and manager of a popular Austin bookstore, was in treatment to address her bipolar disorder. I think she also might have had some alcohol issues along with that too. The pair were soon inseparable, having developed an immediate intense friendship over their shared issues of childhood traumas. The pair had even arranged to be transferred to Timberlawn Hospital in Dallas for ongoing care. Now, while there, they had started out sharing a room but were soon separated when a staff member saw Tracy giving Celeste a massage. Uh-oh. I've not been inpatient, but I would imagine that is not allowed. No. So in June 1999, Celeste was discharged from inpatient treatment. Tracy and Celeste's friendship continued, with the couple keeping in close contact. Tracy became a constant fixture at the Beard residence. Tracy even hosted a lavish party for Tracy and her employees at her lake house. And the couple's closeness didn't go unnoticed by others around them, especially by Celeste's daughters, who suspected something more intimate happening between the pair. I believe even Stephen was aware that this relationship was not maybe just purely friendship, but he tried to include Tracy because Celeste really seemed to bond with her. So he'd invite her over for dinners and try to include her, but I don't think he was very happy about her presence all the time. They cared enough that she was still helpful to the recovery, maybe. (laughs) So back to the night of the shooting. Stephen was rushed into surgery to repair a gunshot wound he had received to his abdomen. Doctors found that Stephen had an orange size hole in his upper right abdomen and birdshot had damaged several of his internal organs. Stephen also suffered severe colon damage and had to have a large amount of his colon removed, which created the need for an ileostoma. So skin grafts were required to actually close the wound in his abdomen. It was one shot, but it was one shot that did a whole heck of a lot of damage. So once in recovery, Celeste was a constant presence by his side. She would not even allow officers Paul Knight and Rick Wines to ask Stephen any questions. She even posted a sign outside of his hospital room stating, no visitors, including police. She even went on to hire a criminal defense attorney informing police they would need to go through their lawyer. Now, this is an allegation that Celeste denies, claiming it was Stephen who did not wish to talk to police and she was just following his wishes. However, Celeste did talk to the police herself and she would tell them that she did not hear anything that night from her room on the other part of the sprawling house. She told them that she didn't sleep in the master bedroom due to Stephen's CPAP machine being too loud. She only slept in their bedroom maybe to take afternoon naps, but besides that, she didn't really share anything else with them. So investigators are left with trying to question other members of the Beard's household wanting to find out who would have a reason to try to kill Stephen. Investigators decided to talk to Jennifer and Christina and their respective boyfriends at the time to find out what they may know. And Jennifer, right away, gave the name Tracy Tarleton to Officer Knight. So what police didn't know at the time was that when Christina and Celeste were leaving the residence to follow Stephen to the hospital, Celeste had whispered to Christina not to mention Tracy's name if asked who they might suspect shot Stephen. So Christina would also pass this information on to her boyfriend and Jennifer. So Christina immediately called her boyfriend and asked him to reach out to Jennifer and her boyfriend who were en route to the hospital. However, Jennifer decided that she was going to share what she knew with the police because she really liked Stephen and she did not feel he deserved what happened to him. She had that bond with him. She did. So Christina would share with investigators what she knew and she shared with them that one time she had walked in on her mother and Tracy lying in bed. The girls believed that their mother's friendship was something more. And definitely more intimate. And the girls even said that they had told Stephen what they had seen and what they suspected. And with his own concerns, with his own eyes, because he knew, you know, he wasn't blind. He didn't want Tracy in their home anymore when he found out about this. And I think this was around the time of the lake house party she put on. I think it was like the next day they had kind of walked in on this when they had gone there to kind of clean up the lake house. And when Stephen heard this, he's like, "Uh uh-uh, I don't want her around. Last straw. So with this information and knowing that the sliding glass door had been unlocked and that the alarm had been turned off in the master bedroom the night of the shooting, they decided to visit Tracy Tarleton. So detectives went to Tracy's house and asked if they could interview her, which she agreed to. Tracy told detectives that she and Celeste were just friends. But when detectives looked around her house, they noticed that there was a sort of shrine of pictures to Celeste and with candles kind of lit underneath them. And, you know, just to one detective, it was kind of like, yeah, that seems a little more than friendship. Detectives asked Tracy if she had anything to do with Stephen's shooting, and she replied no. Next, they asked if she owned a shotgun, and Tracy said yes, and even voluntarily handed it over. So detectives took possession of the 20-gauge shotgun and sent it off to ballistic testing. So once ballistic testing was completed, results would show an exact match to the weapon used to shoot Stephen Beer. Uh Uh-oh, Tracy. Uh Uh-oh, Tracy, right. So the day after the ballistic match came in, Tracy was asked to come into the police station for a formal interview. So when confronted with the ballistic results, Tracy admitted that she had shot Stephen. But she would not tell detectives why she did it. Tracy was placed under arrest and charged with attempted murder on October 8th, 1999. And I did read somewhere that she was released on bail. So three months after being admitted to the hospital, Stephen was discharged from Health South Rehabilitation Center and sent home on January 18, 2000 with Celeste in charge of his care. Stephen was confined to a wheelchair at this point, and he was in a considerable amount of pain, not just due to his age. I think there was some weight issues, too. And this, again, this shooting caused massive damage. So he was in pain whenever he had to be moved from like the wheelchair to the bed or a wheelchair to the table. It had to be awful. So Celeste claims that Stephen only wanted her to take care of him and did not want a home healthcare worker to come in. So Celeste was given explicit instructions by Stephen's doctor on how to care for his wound and to take care of his ileostoma that required daily cleaning. She also needed to make sure to regularly clean his wound to avoid any type of infection. So Celeste, having no healthcare experience, agreed. And she would say and snap behind bars she did this because she felt so guilty about bringing Tracy into their lives. That she was going to step up. Not something she was comfortable with doing, but she would do it because Stephen asked her to and she felt guilty. However, Stephen returned to the hospital the next day when his medical condition took a drastic turn. Oh my gosh. Celeste had phoned Stephen's doctor to complain about the care he had received while in the rehabilitation center. The doctor agreed to have Stephen come in and he would examine him at Celeste's request. So I don't think this the doctor had necessarily discharged him. It was the doctors at the rehab center that did. So upon examination, the doctor didn't feel Stephen looked too bad, but admitted him for treatment of a yeast infection in his groin area. So by the morning of January 22nd, Stephen's condition had worsened with a blood test showing that he did have an infection. Antibiotics were ordered in the morning, but weren't administered until 1 p.m. Stephen Beard died later that afternoon. The cause of death was recorded as septic shock. Tracy Tarleton's charges were upgraded to murder, and she was placed in jail. Still, she wouldn't tell authorities the reason behind Stephen's shooting. So after Stephen's funeral, the widowed Celeste went on a lavish spending spree. And she would later say that she was crazy with grief. And it was around this time that Celeste hired Donna Godson as her personal assistant. Celeste was telling friends that she was so upset over Stephen's death that she checked herself into a psychiatric clinic. But in reality, in February 2000, Celeste and Godson had traveled to Houston for a rodeo and then went on to Lake Charles, Louisiana to visit a casino, not a psychiatric hospital. Mm -mm. Those around Celeste didn't feel that she was grieving as someone normally would with her partying and carrying on. As Godson would later testify to, Celeste usually slept all day and partied all night. And it was only five months. After Stephen's death that Celeste would marry for the fifth time, the lucky groom was bartender Cole Johnson, age 41. Now, I also read in other stories that he was possibly a carpenter, but you can be a carpenter bartender. Yeah, true. So Celeste would end up selling off a lot of real estate that was the bulk of Stephen's fortune after his death and used the money to buy a home in Fort Worth, Texas, where her new husband had extended family. So six months after Stephen had passed, Tracy Tarleton was sitting in jail when she came across a newspaper article about the newlywed Celeste Beard Johnson. And in July 2000, Tracy placed a call to detectives finally ready to tell them why she shot Stephen Beard and she had quite a story to tell. Uh Uh-oh. Tracy admitted to detectives that she and Celeste had an intimate sexual relationship that began while they were both in the inpatient psychiatric unit and continued upon their release. While inpatient, Celeste allegedly told Tracy that she only married Stephen to help secure custody of her daughter, but now felt trapped in a loveless marriage. Celeste went on to say that Stephen was slowly killing her psychologically and emotionally. And Tracy believed the portrait that Celeste painted of Stephen as being an abusive husband. Keep in mind, she also has her childhood trauma issues of abuse she's dealing with. So the pair continued to see each other while in outpatient treatment at Timberlawn, meeting in hotel rooms as their relationship became more intense. Once they returned to Austin, they continued to see each other with Celeste often spending the night at Tracy's place several nights a week. Now, Tracy claimed that four months before the shooting, Celeste had come to her, begging her for help. She claimed that Celeste told her that if she stayed with Stephen, she would end up taking her own life. If she tried to leave, she was afraid Stephen would come after her. Celeste went on and on about how cruel Stephen was and that he was physically abusive towards her and her girls. Tracy felt for Celeste primarily due again to her own traumatic childhood abuse and the couple then schemed how they could spend more time together again as Stephen had refused to allow her on property or around his family. So Tracy went on to tell detectives how Celeste would get out of the house undetected. Steven liked to have a cocktail in the evenings, especially vodka. Celeste began to replace Steven's vodka with Everclear. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's high potent. So Everclear is a high concentration grain alcohol that is tasteless, but it packs quite a punch. It's so strong. It can be used as a disinfectant. I don't know where I got this. I was watching probably E! Entertainment television, but celebrities were sharing their cleaning secrets, and I think it was Christy Alley. I'm not sure. I want to say Cher <laughs> said she cleans with vodka.
1: I like that Cher and Christy Alley are kind of the same in your brain, first <laughs> of all. I don't know why. I believe
0: it is. <laughs> she, I don't know.
1: Now I'm thinking Christie Alley. It was one of them
0: that shared that they use vodka to clean their, their bathrooms.
1: That's wild. And number two takeaway here is don't let your spouse make your drink all the time. Correct criminal discourse life tip.
0: (laughs) So Stephen's cocktail would have him in bed by 10pm after which she would go out and meet up with Tracy and stay out till 2pm or even earlier in the morning. As time went on, Tracy claims that the discussion on how to get Celeste away from Stephen turned darker. She said that Celeste had her buy some ecstasy pills that she put in Stephen's nightly cocktail in the hopes that he would overdose. When that didn't work, Celeste had Tracy buy a book about poisons. Well, she was a bookshop manager, so that probably was pretty easy. (laughs) Celeste then prepared a meal for Stephen with one of the poisons as an ingredient. Stephen, however, survived. So in September 1999, Celeste decided that they needed to be more hands-on in ending Stephen's life. Celeste put some sleeping pills in his food so he would pass out. Celeste then called Tracy to come over, and when she arrived, she found Stephen passed out at the dining room table. Tracy claims that they both took turns trying to suffocate him with a bag over his head. This deadly back and forth ended when Tracy said, yeah, I just, I can't, I can't do this. Mm -mm. And it would be three weeks later that she agreed to shoot Stephen. So before the shooting, Stephen had been planning a trip to Europe for him and Celeste in October of 1999. Remember that statement she made? Oh, we were supposed to leave for Europe tomorrow. This was that trip. Celeste told Tracy that she was dreading the trip and feared the emotional abuse Stephen would give her. Celeste wanted Tracy to shoot Stephen before the trip. Now, Celeste knew that Tracy had hunted before and she owned a shotgun. And Tracy told detectives that initially she refused. But she changed her mind when Celeste said she was going to kill herself. That emotional manipulation. There you go. Tracy then asked Celeste for three things if she got arrested. One, find a good home for her pets. Second, to pay for all of her legal fees. And finally, that Celeste needed to support her while she was in jail. And according to Tracy, Celeste agreed to all three requests. So the day before the shooting on October 1st, Tracy went to Beard's residence that afternoon and planned the shooting out with Celeste. Celeste told her that she arranged for Jennifer to be away that night, but that Christina would be there, but with her on the other side of the house. Celeste showed Tracy where to park, how to enter the house, and where Stephen would be sleeping. Tracy then told Celeste that her shotgun would eject a spent shell casing that Celeste promised she would pick up and dispose of after Tracy left. Celeste also allegedly told Tracy that if Stephen didn't die right away, she would wait to call for help. So later on that night of the first, Celeste paid an unannounced visit to Tracy's house to tell her to park somewhere else to avoid being seen by neighbors. She also assured her that the house would be unlocked and the alarms would be off. So Tracy arrived shortly before 2 a.m. and found the gate opened as planned. She parked the car near the twins' bedroom and entered the house through the unlocked door near Stephen's bedroom. Tracy then walked into the bedroom and shot him in the stomach. Shooting him in the abdomen, Tracy claims had been suggested by Celeste. She didn't want it to be a head wound because she thought that would leave too much spat. Oh gosh. And be too messy to clean up. So she then exited the house, returned to her car and drove home. So Tracy tells detectives that she didn't dispose of her 20 gauge shotgun since it had been like, I don't know if it, she personalized it or it was a gift, but it was personalized and she was sure that Celeste would collect the shell casing as she had promised to do. You don't have that shell casing, you're not going to trace it back to her gun. Right. Tracy tells detectives that the pair remained in contact after the shooting and even met up in a park that was convenient to both the hospital Stephen was in and Tracy's work. Next, Tracy dropped the biggest bombshell on detectives. She tells them that she may have shot Stephen Beard, but she didn't kill him. Celeste did. She goes on to say that before Stephen was discharged from the rehabilitation center, Celeste told her that she wasn't going to hire a home health aide because she planned to infect Stephen's wounds herself. Tracy Tarleton pleaded guilty to murder and accepted a plea deal of a 22-year sentence in exchange for testifying against her one-time friend and lover. So on March 28, 2002, Celeste Beard Johnson was arrested and charged with capital murder, murder, and injury to an elderly individual. She was initially denied bail, but appealed and was granted bail for $500,000. Now, initially, the state had asked for $8 million, but the judge took it down to 000. Celeste pleaded not guilty and hired famed Texas attorney Dick DeJurgen to represent her. He's a pretty big, well known name, especially in Texas. Celeste went on trial on February 3rd, 2003, with prosecutors painting her as a manipulative gold digger who had only married Stephen Beard for his money. And when her extravagant spending habits threatened her marriage, she began a steamy lesbian relationship with a vulnerable fellow patient, convincing her that the only way they could be together was for her to kill her husband. The defense agreed that greed was the center of Stephen's murder, but that it was her twin daughter's greed and Tracy's obsession with Celeste that was the reason for Stephen's murder. You see, Stephen had adopted both girls a month prior to their 18th birthdays, as he promised Celeste he would. So they were heirs to his estate as well. So their purpose is because the girls did testify against her that they were just doing this to get Celeste out of the way so they could get their inheritance.
1: So she'd even turn on her own daughters for the sake of, oh, just wait.
0: So Tracy Tarleton took the stand as the state star witness. She testified as to how she met Celeste and how she believed everything Celeste told her, including them living together at the lake house once Stephen was deceased. She truly believed that Celeste loved her. She related to the jury everything she told the police about the Everclear, the sleeping pills, the failed suffocation, and finally, to whose idea it was to have her shoot Stephen. Now to back up Tracy's testimony, both Celeste's daughters, Jennifer and Christina, testified to portions of Tracy's earlier testimony. The twins each testified that Celeste didn't hide her disdain for Stephen, but would only do so behind his back and never in his presence. They saw Celeste substitute the Everclear for Stephen's vodka, even mixed sleeping pills into his food. And they stated Stephen didn't deserve what Celeste was doing to him, but they were too afraid of Celeste and what she might do if they spoke out. So the twins also were aware of Celeste's sexual relationship with Tracy, with Christina testifying that she had a key to Tracy's house, Tracy Tarleton's house, and some time, she had to go wake Celeste up there after having spent the night to get her back home. She also stated that the morning after the lake party for Tracy and her employees, she had gone to help clean up and found Celeste and Tracy in bed together. It also came out at trial that throughout 1999, Celeste had been having an affair with her ex-husband, Jimmy Martinez. Christina testified that she also had to occasionally drive Celeste over to Jimmy's house where she would spend the night. Messy. That's a good one. (laughs) So on the night of the shooting, Christina had gone out on a date with her boyfriend to dinner and a movie. Ordinarily, she didn't have a curfew. But on that night, Celeste told her she had to be home by midnight. So Christina arrived home actually at 11 p.m. with plans of having her boyfriend stay over, which he had done before with Celeste's knowledge that wasn't a problem. That night, however, Celeste told him, yeah, you got to go. So he left around midnight. Now, Jennifer testified on the night of October 1st, 1999, Celeste had told her she and her boyfriend could spend the weekend at the lake house together. Jennifer found that odd as this was the only time Celeste had told her she could use the lake house without Jennifer having to ask permission first. So Jennifer went on to say that later that night, between the hours of 9 and 10 p.m., that Celeste showed up with Stephen's dog, Megan, claiming that Stephen was drunk and he had been hitting the dog. And again, Jennifer found this odd is Stephen was never violent, especially towards his dog. And Megan was old and quite infirmed and thought, why are you driving 45 minutes out to this lake house with this dog at night? Celeste left sometime after 1030 p.m. So the girls also testified that their mother's mental state after Stephen's death and while the investigation's going on into his murder and prior to her own arrest, her, her mental state was deteriorating. So she's hospitalized for a second time. And Christina, at that point, started tape recording their conversations when Celeste would call from the inpatient unit. She wanted to be able to play them back to Celeste to make her hear how she sounds and the horrible way she talked to her. So some of these recordings were played for the jury. And in one of them, the jury could hear Celeste say, quote, I hired someone to kill Tracy. Oh, wow. Unquote. (laughs) So it came out at trial through testimony from Donna Goodson that during the Lake Charles trip, Celeste allegedly told her that it would take two pieces of evidence to indict someone, a gun and the other would be Tracy. And this is according to information she got from her attorney. So Goodson commented that Tracy might already be cooperating with the police. And that's when Celeste asked if she knew of anyone that could get rid of Tracy. Goodson appeared to lead Celeste on, telling her for the right amount of money, anyone could get rid of anybody. That's when Celeste gave her $500 to hire someone to kill Tracy, even showing Goodson Tracy's house and the vehicle she drove. As time went on and Tracy was still alive, Goodson said, well, I need more money. No one's going to do it for $500. So Celeste would end up giving her payments of like $2,500, another one for $2,500, and another one for $7,460. A hitman was never hired. Instead, Goodson was just fleecing her for money. So the con man got conned. Correct. So other evidence introduced at trial included phone records showing hundreds of calls between Celeste and Tracy between August 29th and October 1st of 1999. In all, 98 calls totaling 336 minutes. This included eight calls totaling 15 minutes on the day of the shooting. After the shooting and Tracy being charged on October 8th, There were 94 calls, totaling 389 minutes up to January 26, 2000, right after Stephen died. And then after that, nothing. Mm. So the defense tried to paint Tracy Tarleton as a delusional, mentally ill, predatory woman who was obsessed with Celeste and acted on her own, murdering Stephen. The defense also tried to paint the twins as spoiled brats, having an ulterior motive to wanting their mother convicted. They claimed the girls were the ones who were the manipulators and needed Celeste out of the way to get their hands on Stevens' estate. So it would all come down to the jury, and after a six-week trial and over 100 witnesses, they sided with the prosecution's case and found Celeste guilty on two of the three charges against her, capital murder and injury to an elderly individual. Celeste Beard Johnson will be eligible for parole when she turns 79 years old in 2042. So Celeste Beard Johnson, for close to 20 years, still maintains her innocence. She has given numerous interviews protesting her innocence and how she was betrayed by her daughters, calling them the Menendez sisters. (laughs) You can see this with the two most recent interviews she's done, the shows on this case. One is Snap Behind Bars, which I've already mentioned, and the other is ABC's Who Do You Believe?, which aired in May of 2022. And that can be found on Hulu. It's an interesting look. So they have Celeste and and Celeste's mom who believes her that she's innocent and that her granddaughters are manipulative. Wow. And then on the other side is her daughters. You see both of them and the one of the police detectives that worked on the case. So as for the twins who are now in their 40s, both believe their mother is a manipulative monster. And that Stephen, again, didn't deserve what happened to him. Christina, who do you believe even Feels sorry for Tracy Tarleton and that she understands the manipulation she faced from Celeste as she had been manipulated as a child and claiming that her father had beaten her and her sister. Oh, wow. Which he never did.
1: Wow.
0: As for Tracy Tarleton, she was paroled after serving 10 years and was released on parole in 2011. As of August 2021, Tarleton completed her parole requirements and was last reported to be living in the San Antonio area, rebuilding her life. After the trial, Tracy requested to meet with both Jennifer and Christina, which they agreed to, and Tracy told them that she feels guilty for believing Celeste's lies, and she thought Stephen was this evil man Celeste portrayed him to be. Neither of the girls have talked to Celeste in over 20 years. And that is the case of the first episode of Snapped, the one that inspired it all. It's, I think it's (laughs) like season 20 something now. Yeah, it's crazy. It's an interesting case. I think it's a cautionary case. Again, she claims her innocence. She claims, yes, I did originally marry Stephen for money, but I fell in love with him. She says he was a good man. She'd never do this to him.
1: I don't buy Celeste crap for a second.
0: I'm not really feeling that. But yeah, she's uh, she's not doing well in prison either. I think she has some neurological issues. She's in a wheelchair a lot. So but yeah, if she makes it, she's not paroled for till 2042.
1: When there are this many people close to her who can attest to the lies and the manipulation and the multiple different stories. And then she's also
0: being recorded on tape saying these things. It just she claims that the. Those tapes were manipulated, uh, and that is kind of cut and paste to make her sound like she said those things, or they're taken out of context. And yeah, I mean, she's appealed. She's not won her appeals, but she's appealed. But she's where she is, and that's that's behind bars. All right, everybody. Well, we hope you've enjoyed this episode, and you've heard me talk about Snapped before. One of my fave shows to watch when you just want to watch mindless television. So check it out. I think it's on the. On well, the US on the Oxygen channel, but you can find them online. It's a good show. It really yeah. is. And then this one snap behind bars is interesting because it goes back to cover some of the cases and Celeste was one of them. They've done others too.
1: I haven't watched that series yet. So yeah, maybe... I just
0: stumbled upon it. I didn't know it was even out there.
1: I'll have to check that one out next. I'm, t- I'm too big. Netflix has been coming out with a bunch of true crime and, and documentary stuff that's been very interesting. I've been hitting that up lately. So
0: yes. So if you've enjoyed this episode, let us know. You can reach out to us through all those ways I talked about at the beginning of the episode. And we would only ask wherever you listen to us on, if you could subscribe. That would be great. If you could leave us a review, that would be awesome. We love to hear how great we are. You know, more things we need to work on and improve on. Oh, please.
1: Oh, please. Oh, please. (laughs) All right. Just the good stuff. Just the good stuff.
0: All right, everybody, if you see something, say something. You might have that missing piece of the puzzle it takes to solve the crime like Jennifer did. Right away. Yeah, I'm not lying. If the police ask me who I think did this, I'm sure as hell going to tell you who I think did this. And she did.
1: Tell the truth no matter what.
0: Correct. And as always, we want you to be safe out there. But we also need to look out for one another. And in doing so, we can also be kind to one another. So until next time, guys. Bye. Bye.